Welcome. Welcome to this week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast, veteran stories of strength, courage, and perseverance. I am your host, Tiffany Marching. This week's episode of the podcast, we hear from Dr. James Lynch, a retired medical doctor who achieved the rank of colonel, talks to us about an organization that he co-founded with another fellow medical doctor from the military. The Stellet Ganglion Block is what is the service that they provide for those who have experienced PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to talk briefly about PTSD and what it is. Often we associate it with service members who were in combat. While service members in combat can definitely get a diagnosis of PTSD, that's not the only category of people who can experience it. PTSD is indeed what the name says. A traumatic event has occurred. Stress this traumatic event afterwards, post-traumatic, can cause a stress disorder whether it's just it lasts days, months, years, or decades after the traumatic event. Now, one thing I want to clarify, too, is you don't have to actually personally been, well, not personally traumatized, because you are traumatized, otherwise it wouldn't be PTSD. Let me use this as an example. Let's say I'm going to work one day in New York. I'm riding the subway. And at a stop, I see a coworker get on the subway too. We get off at our stop, walk into a coffee shop, grab our coffee, and step out. And like the moment we step out of this coffee shop on this Tuesday morning, we see a plane hit one of the towers. Now, of those, of the two of us, one of this can be fine. And not experience any of the anxieties or stressors from witnessing what I just saw. While the person, my coworker, may be traumatized for months or years because of witnessing a plane hitting this tower. Maybe the, my coworker was more traumatized because the plane hit where her office is located. Or just knowing somebody who worked in the, in the, in the towers. Anything can be a trigger. A sexual assault can be a traumatic event. It not can be a, a sexual assault is a traumatic event. Um, experiencing a kidnapping. Um, seeing a friend or family member beat up by a stranger or robbed by a stranger. Any of these things can be a traumatic event. So not just experiencing the traumatic event, but actually witnessing it firsthand can be the root cause of PTSD. So without further ado, I know you didn't tune in to listen to me, Let's join this episode now where I spoke with Dr. Retired Colonel James Lynch. 
Um, examples of some of the emotional changes that we experience include increased nervousness, fear, grief, depression, hopelessness, helplessness, feelings of anger and irritability, feeling overwhelmed, um, again, that feeling numb, um, and then feeling guilt, shame, and vulnerability. Right? So again, a really large range. And so in, in this way, PTSD, even though there's a lot of similarities and it can, and people can have similar types of difficulties, it really is like individual specific in terms of how it shows up in your everyday life. Welcome. Both Sean and I have spent over 31 years in the military. We feel very important to us to take care of our fellow brothers and sisters, which might charge a very reasonable rate, even though we, you know, TRICARE doesn't cover it and stuff, so it's kind of a pain in the neck. Yeah. But um, our approach is very different. How are you? Good. We've never met, but I kind of feel like I know a little bit about you just from following you. How are you? I'm good. So the procedure has actually been around 100 years. So okay. that that's an interesting thing. The Stelly Ganglion Block Procedure was performed for 100 years, since the 1920s, before ultrasound or fluoroscopy, just touching the bone right here and injecting next to your finger, believe it or not. Um, thousands and thousands of people between the 1920s and the advent of fluoroscopy, which is like live ultrasound or live x-ray. Um, so there are many physicians that are trained to perform Stelly Ganglion Block during their pain fellowship or anesthesia fellowship, and they may learn the procedure. They may or may not become good at it or, or do a lot of them, but but certainly there are many people that are trained to do it. Um, the procedure itself is quite helpful, but how the procedure is done and in like what um, context, how much time is spent with the procedure um, and the patient, the counseling that goes along with it, a lot of those things make a difference. So I think what that's probably the thing that differentiates us the Stelly Institute versus any other provider is we spend a lot of time. We spend 45 minutes to an hour with every patient. That's that's unheard of. In the in the other scenario, you basically get a you know a quickie visit, it's almost as high, you know, you read your consent form. And then many of the doctors who do the procedure actually sedate their patients for it, which is not how we do things. Nor do we agree with that. It actually incurs additional risk. And it's Unnecessary. The procedure itself is relatively painless. It takes just a couple of minutes. So to do things like add sedation, add antibiotics that are unnecessary, add a whole bunch of extra um, things, and then charge people a lot of money for that, put in an operating room and a suite with an anesthesia provider, is um, we think is not only unnecessary but why would somebody use anesthesia versus not or sedate versus not? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of it is just plain how people are trained. So a lot of doctors who are trained in the procedure are trained in a hospital setting where they perform procedures under fluoroscopy, which is a big C-arm. It's a big piece of equipment, typically an operating room. So, um, you know, in a hospital or a surgery center or something like that. And that's a lot how a lot of people got trained and accustomed to performing the procedure. Um, don't get me wrong. It's not like that's wrong or anything like that. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it's slightly different. One of the, the drawbacks with fluoroscopy is you can't see blood vessels or any soft tissue for that matter very well. You can see bones very well. And using those landmarks and a couple of techniques, you can perform a block fairly safely. People will sedate patients for this. Honestly, I think it's just because they, they don't know better. And I don't mean that as an insult. I think mm -hmm. 
if a patient feels anxious about something, they say, okay, we'll give you some twilight sedation and make you comfortable. But frankly, like then you wake up from twilight sedation, a little groggy, you kind of miss the fact that the procedure is relatively painless. And when you're lying wide awake and you're comfortable under ultrasound guidance, they use a tiny little 25-gauge needle. It feels like a COVID shot. And then if you're doing the procedure and somebody has pain, they can tell you. And you can redirect and you're not worried about just going through something important, skewering something, which you can do if the patient's sedated. And, you can, you know, it doesn't make sense um, when there's an alternative. So, so really just different techniques and... And the, the techniques or the, the way you do it actually matter. I, honestly, I think having done more than anybody else in the whole world at our site, we just, we take our time and we then we share the experiences that we've heard after keeping track of hundreds mm-hmm. of patients over the past year. So that's helpful. That's actually, you know, it's hard to quantify. It's not something like you can check off a, a checklist or something, but it, I do think it's very important. It also helps patients feel at ease that they're not getting rushed around and it's like, getting wheeled into one room or wheeled out to the other and stuff. We could do it in a really low threat way. You know, there are anxiety meters off the chart when you're doing some of this stuff. And and I think, you know, we take care of all all walks, you know, I which is interesting. I take care of having been in the military for a long time, I've taken care of, you know, primarily military over the past twenty plus years. And now I see probably specifically for Stelligaling block, I see probably about 75%, 25% civilian to military and all backgrounds of trauma from civilian from childhood to sexual assault to all kinds of stuff. So, um, so it's interesting, you know, there's all kinds of responses to that. And for me, I ha- at the time that that happened, I did have anxiety, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until later on. This podcast is brought to you by Acuity Benefit Consulting. Retaining military veteran talent is critical to your bottom line. So give them a specialized resource for the benefit that they value most, VA Disability Compensation. Acuity provides them with an in-depth, one-on-one educational session on VA disability benefits curated to your veterans' needs. For more information, contact Navy veteran Ray Hun at acuitybenefitconsulting.com. Again, that is www.acuitybenefitconsulting.com. I'm Jim Lynch. I'm a colonel retired uh, from the United States Army. Uh, I served about 31 years on active duty, um, initially as an officer, then later going to medical school. And I served all my time as a physician in the special operations community and just retired about two years ago. Uh, when I retired, I left Fort Bragg and moved to Annapolis, Maryland, where I teamed up with one of my former Army physician colleagues, Dr. Sean Mulvaney. And we established what's called the Stellate Institute here in Annapolis, Maryland where we serve as essentially the, the world experts or center of excellence on a procedure called Stelliganglion block, which is used to treat PTSD and anxiety. We were two of the pioneers of this in the military that is now, and we're, we're continuing to 
um, try to raise awareness and spread the reach of the procedure. And that's really um, become my passion and the thing that really, really fuels me here and what I, what I do. Um, I had a great career and had a blast doing a lot of different things. I've, I've deployed to combat starting with uh, Panama in the first Gulf War and my early days as a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne. Um, I deployed to um, OIF uh, twice to Iraq with the Special Forces Group and to Afghanistan and Syria with a special mission unit out of Fort Bragg. Um, and I had a blast with my tribe in the military, and I'm still kind of getting adjusted to life on the outside. Um, in my current, current position, I get a chance to take care of everybody. So civilians, veterans, active duty, military, people from all walks of life, and pretty much anyone with any background in any type of trauma or anxiety will come to our center from um, around the country, really, and then several other countries. We've had um, quite a few folks travel in from all over to get seen here. It's it's awesome. I have two thoughts on that. I think, you know, frequently people who are getting ready to transition out of the military are wrestling with this, with their identity. And for me, that was a huge deal. I, I entered the military at 17 years old. Um, I went to West Point, graduated, and I spent the entire time till I, gra- till I retired last year um, at 54 years old, the whole time in the military. I, don't, I don't, didn't really know anything else. Um, and it's really intimidating. It's a smack in the face to transition, try to find out, find your way and really find your, um, your passion and your purpose. The, the good thing, I think, or the, the fortunate thing for being a physician who specializes in some things that translate fairly easily into the civilian sector, um, is making that transition fairly seamless. What's hard to do is actually, uh, you know, replicate the people you're used to being around. And I, I certainly miss that. But um, I had one of my patients the other day ask me, I was just finished a steli ganglion block, which is a procedure which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But, and they looked up at me and they said, they said, wow, you must get tired of doing this. And, and nobody had ever asked me that question before. And I stopped and I was like, nope, <laughs> I actually <laughs> don't. Um, I can't think of a single one of these procedures that I've done where I've been you know, tired of it or, or at all, like bored in any way. And I think the point that you made is because I mean, it can be a life changing, life saving, dramatic thing. It's, it's truly rewarding. It's the kind of thing where I, honestly, I go home at the end of the day and I'm like, geez, I got the best job in the world. I got, I got a great opportunity to do some really cool stuff that I think is meaningful. Um, and that, and that's hopeful for other people who are leaving the military too, because You'd, you'd like to feel that way um, after serving, particularly if you've been around the past 20 years of multiple deployments. You want to feel like, okay, I got I got something like that um, ahead of me and something I can really sink my teeth into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and I think I think for you, um, for you and people who have a good, solid, concrete skill set that can be used both in the military and out of the military helps with the transition but but a transition i think is so much more than merely finding a job and finding employment because like you said you were you were 17 when you joined i turned 20 during basic training and retired when i was 44 so my entire adult life was my identity as an adult was in my uniform sure 
Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that gets, you know, even preparing for it. I remember my last year on active duty and everybody's talking about that. And, um, you know, the army has, uh, gone all in on transition type programs and things, but so you actually get out there and then there's just odd things. I'll, I'll tell you that one of the weirdest is being a physician in the civilian world where you actually have to talk about money and insurance, mm. which I, I still haven't gotten accustomed to. Um, but the idea that in the, in the military, uh, you know, while on active duty, I felt like I could do whatever I wanted to do for my patients in the best, in their best interest without being restricted by a lot of things, which mm-hmm. that might surprise some people that to think like, well, I don't know. You had a lot of rules to follow in the army and all. Honestly, and particularly in the special operations community, I think we had quite a bit of, of freedom to, um, to maneuver to, to provide the best care to our, our, um, our patients and our teammates, you know, like these are people, um, in my unit and, uh, super, super gratifying. And then you have to move into the the civilian world where, um, there's this thing like you have to pay co-pays. Like I couldn't believe it when I had to go find my own doctor and, you know, I couldn't find one. They weren't taking me patients. I'm like calling people. Not like I need a whole lot, but uh, I just needed to find a doctor. I couldn't find one, and then I had to go. And you have to pay money. And anyway, it's yeah. a hassle. And I realized, geez, I, I became accustomed to a very nice system where doctors could can really provide good care for their patients, which I I know is not a universal experience for every person in the military would say that. But I, I think all in all. Um, the folks that I served with probably got um, got great care. Yeah, and I think a lot of that too is the um, with what you're saying. The army tells you you need to move from this location to the next. You know, there's already a built-in system of medical care. Sure. You get out the military and you have to go move wherever or stay where you are. Now it's just a whole new world of stuff. And, and, and it impacts too when you're going to negotiate your salary of how much you're going to get paid. Because when in the military, our base pay is our base pay and we're not paying, you know, co-pays that's being taken out of that. Yep. So you, you have to look at that when you, the things you're going to have to pay into once you are yeah. in the civilian world. Yeah. So the question I want to ask you though, to even backtrack, when you joined the military, this is kind of like a uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg type that question. Did you, were you more passionate about serving in the military or doing something in the medical medical field or did they kind of merge together at the same time? How did that work? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great question. I had no uh, interest at all in medicine. You know, in high school, I was kind of, I don't know, whatever patriotic kind of kid for whatever reason, because I had nobody else in the military in my family. Um, I just had it that I was going to join the military and serve my time. And I was pretty excited about um, going to the military academy, going out and getting commissioned and serving somewhere in the army. In my first few years of, um, particularly as a platoon leader in, in Desert Storm, I got exposed to some um, army physicians and I, I kind of um, you know, I had some thoughts like, Hey, that, that might be something I could do. And, and, um, uh, you know, candidly, I was like, I think I could do that better. <laughs> this is in terms of some, some, um, tactical skills that were necessary for being, a, uh, an army physician. Um, I think early on, I felt very serious that there's a difference between being a physician in the army and being an army physician. Um, and I, t- I took that quite serious. I feel like 
you know, once, once I got the bug where I really wanted to do medicine, um, I was not a pre-med uh, major. So I had to go to night school for three years while I was stationed at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, which was not fun. Uh, not San Antonio, but the night school thing was kind of <laughs> yeah. a grind um, to make up all my classes like organic chemistry and biology and all these other things that I had to take just to take the test to get into medical school. Um, so it was a that was a grind, but I was kind of all in there. And I thought, what a cool uh, job to do is not only be in the military and serve and potentially take care of soldiers in combat, but to actually, you know, be a physician doing that. So, yeah, I caught the bug later on. and That really wasn't my my goal um, anywhere up until some, somewhere as a lieutenant, I, it happened. So when you were commissioned out, out of the academy, what was your branch? Um, transportation? Yeah, I, I branched Medical Service Corps and became a medical platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne. Um, at that time, I was, you know, kind of considering like, hey, maybe there's some role in this. I had um, the interesting thing was I went and worked at Walter Reed for a summer when I was considering medicine early on and said, uh, talked to a couple of physicians who said, essentially shine some light on. It. I thought, OK, that's not for me. I don't want to do medicine. But I, I ran into a, an officer there who was this branch called Medical Service Corps. And his uniform was hanging up behind his door. He had a uh, master parachutist wings and a ranger tab, I think. And I, I didn't even recognize what the Caduceus thing was. I was like, what the heck branch is this? Because I wasn't exposed to that at all at West Point. He explained to me that I could spend time in an infantry battalion. I could spend time in, in a division and do maneuver type things, not have to work in a hospital, not have to work in a hospital. But I could still do some things that were related to medical medicine. And that's what I ended up doing. So I chose Medical Service Corps and became a med platoon leader um, in 2nd 325 and the 82nd. Um, and then later on, worked my way through some, some time as an executive officer. I was an aide for a year and then company command. And then I taught the officer basic course for about three years down in San Antonio. That's when I was able to finally find a job with some stability to go to night school. Okay. That's awesome. Um, I, I love hearing... When people were e either go from enlisted to officer or were in a couple of different branches, I know one person that started off as they were a chemical officer and then became a public affairs officer that have nothing to do with each other. So I always like to hear how that trans uh, that type of transition happens. Yeah, um, you see, there's some military physicians that have a lot of a lot of different backgrounds. You see a good chunk of people that were pilots that then went into medicine or infantry officers or enlisted. Occasionally you'll find a PA that will then go to medical school as well. So yeah, you'll find a bunch of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, one chaplain that I worked with in the army was a Marine Corps pilot. And I guess he, he was a pilot, found God, went to seminary and became an army chaplain. So right. you're right. It is interesting to see, like, how does a Marine, how do, why does a Marine become a, an army soldier, first of all? But all, but also, how do you go from being a, a fighter pilot to a chaplain? Hmm. I guess that's the, another way to be up in the air and pray to God because you're not actually up there in the sky. In a, I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, so with the Stellet uh, Institute, and I don't want to get it mixed up 
um, with similar names, but what what is this block that you do? How does it work? What's it all about? Yeah, so the the um, the Stellate Institute is the the name of our center. It's named after a procedure called the Stellate uh, Stellate ganglion block. Um, Stelly just means star-like, and it describes the shape of a cluster of nerves in the side of the neck. Um, the, the really simple wave top or kind of bottom line up front is that it's a, simply a nerve block, just like any other nerve block that's conducted by a physician injecting some local anesthetic next to a nerve. Same thing, kind of thing your dentist does to numb up your jaw before a, a tooth procedure. Um, in this case, the nerve that we're numbing up is called the cervical sympathetic trunk, and it's the nerve that controls the whole body's fight or flight response. All the connections in the brain connected to all the connections in the body are all the things that you're familiar with. Everybody knows these because you've all been startled or scared or had the guy slam on his brakes in front of you on the highway. So all the things that are reflexive in your body, like your heart, your lungs, your muscles, your sweat glands, all those things that fire when you're startled are all connected to the parts in your brain that are the threat and fear response centers. And they're connected by this single anatomic funnel that's a nerve that runs along the side of the neck called the cervical sympathetic trunk. You got two of them, one on the right, one on the left. When you numb a nerve, you essentially put it to sleep. And the medicine that we use to perform the block is just called ropivacaine. It's a long-acting anesthetic. It's nothing, nothing special. There's no secret sauce or anything. It just turns the nerve off for eight hours. And when the nerve wakes back up again, it wakes up in a less excited state. Um, that's the concept of the science behind that. And what happens that makes the nerve dysfunctional in the first place is exposure to traumatic experiences. Th these could be a single traumatic experience. It could be um, a lifetime of traumatic experiences or a childhood of tra childhood full of traumatic experiences or repeated traumas. It could be your occupation if you're in traumatic jobs like the military or the first responder community. For many people, it can be an assault or something like that or repeated assaults. It, it doesn't matter. And the cervical sympathetic trunk doesn't really discriminate. What can happen is the level of, of um, amplitude can be increased a little bit and just go from a normal baseline response to a dysfunctional level. Um, this is not uncommon. This can happen with nerves. And the, for people who understand things like um, phantom limb pain, which everybody has heard of or, or have a concept. You can have an amputation of your leg, but still feel pain in your foot that's no longer there. So nerves can become inappropriately stimulated and stuck in like an on position or an elevated position. Um, this can happen to your cervical sympathetic trunk. And, and that causes essentially an elevated level of your fight or flight response. Because we can use a procedure like a nerve block to treat things like phantom limb pain, um, the correlate is, well, why can't we do that to treat an elevated fight or flight nerve as well? Um, the truth is that the procedure has been around for 100 years and the block was performed back in the 1920s by touching next, touching this bone here in the neck and injecting next to your finger a volume of local anesthetic. And that would use, could be used to treat things like pain, um, pain in the upper limb. It was even used to treat things like asthma and some cardiac conditions in the early days as we were exploring this. But around um, 12 years ago or so, early on in the military, both myself and my partner here, Dr. Sean Mulvaney, um, started incorporating this for the treatment of PTSD for the, the um, what 
now seems like a very obvious reason, but at the time was quite um, unknown or cutting edge, was that in performing this the stelly ganglion block, we could turn off the fight or flight nerve for a period of eight hours. And when it wakes up and resets itself, essentially, I know that sounds impersonal, but resets or reboots itself, it reboots and resets in a less excited state. And what can happen is people can just reset and go back to their normal, appropriate working level of a fight or flight system. Um, and that's really what we have been doing. And um, here between us, we have uh, done more than anybody else in the world. We've published most of the literature on this. So even though we're full-time clinicians, we continue to do research. We present our data. We perform studies to try to advance the science and those type of things. Um, but that's the long answer to what the heck is a stellate <laughs> block or where's this name come from? Um, again, stellate. And I didn't know that that meant like a star-shaped thing. When you said you do it in in the bone in your neck, is that the hyoid bone that you, you're doing it in? No, it's a, there's a bone in your vertebrae and the C6, which is the sixth cervical vertebrae level, the anterior tubercle that has a special name called Chasniak tubercle name for some guy named Chasniak. And you can actually touch that with your finger. But what that marks is the level where this nerve runs in a muscle called longus coli, or it runs essentially adjacent to the muscle called longus coli. So it's the kind of thing that has a landmark that you can touch. However, um, I don't think anyone in the right mind would do that now without guidance. So the way we perform the procedure here um, at our institute is ultrasound guidance. And that's something that we've, um, I'll say perfected or have, or, you know, continue to fine tune, but it's a procedure that can be done exceedingly safe, very easily in just less than 10 minutes, usually about five minutes, um, with very, very, very low risk on someone who's just laying comfortably wide awake on, on an exam table. Um, and we use, you know, a tiny little needle. So it feels virtually just like a, a COVID shot or a flu shot. Mm-hmm. So, here, so I, I have two questions that might be tied together and might not be. You, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned that, um, that, that nerve goes to sleep for about eight hours. So let's say I come in and I get this, I get this shot. Eight hours passes by. Now what? I mean, I know you said it resets, it resets itself, but am I, does that mean that any hypervigilance or anxiety is not going to be as severe? Or how do we know that I'm not going to go right back to that anxious state? Yeah, it's a great question. And people ask that too. Like, hang on a second, doc, that medicine wears off in eight hours and goes away. Well, all my stuff's going to come back then too. Um, I, I don't know if this will work for anybody else, but the analogy that helps me think about it is, is a foot on the accelerator of your car. So you're sitting in your parking lot in park and you got your foot on the accelerator or somebody else has your foot on your accelerator and your engine is revving. For some people, that's what this is akin to. So you have kind of an increase in amplitude on your accelerator to the point where it may have been many years and you just become accustomed to it. Well, that's how I am. Maybe I'm a little more amped up. Maybe I'm a little more prone to go zero to 60 with irritability or anger. Maybe I have some poor concentration or some poor sleep. These are some of the very common symptoms that go along with having an elevated sympathetic tone, poor sleep, poor concentration, irritability and anger, like a you know, a flash to bang, a quick zero to 60 for something. And then usually realizing, geez, I don't know why I got that mad or that upset or something, but it seemed to be 
something I could not control. That's to me what it's like having someone put their foot on the gas. Now, what the block does is essentially remove the foot off the accelerator. What it doesn't do is like slam on the brakes. To me, those are two very different things. And it's very important when you're in the military or you're in a high stress and professional environment, if you're a first responder, like the last thing you need is someone depressing your fight or flight system. That's a, that's a big deal. And that's something that we were, um, we answered early on in doing this, both myself and Dr. Mulvaney served in, in the special operations community. We were treating people with deployments coming up. So this is just one of these, we can't be messing with somebody's fight or flight system if there's going to be a negative effect on that. So, so what you end up doing is essentially taking the foot off the gas, which allows the car to go back to idle. Now the accelerator can work properly. So it's not that it doesn't work. It actually just works the way it's supposed to. Um, so basically, people, instead instead of the RPMs on that vehicle being at like 8,000, it's going to go back down to like 2,000 and reset back down to and a then lower. Properly. That's the key, I think, because it's not like we're putting a governor on anything. And I think yeah. people need to know that because if you're, if you have a job that requires you to be, you know, um, be able to react and respond appropriately, both for your safety or other people's safety, you don't need that depressed in any way. You need it to be working perfectly. So so the thing that some people understand this, particularly if you've played um, high-level sports or you're familiar with the, the curve in sports psychology, but you can actually be too amped up. We all know this. And anybody who's played sports or watched the sports, you wonder why, you know, the receiver drops the ball thrown right to him because he's just too amped up um, or just over the curve where you become overstimulated or over amplified and you need to bring it back and get to a level that's actually proper. So um, that's really what the block does. It helps reset so that now the fire flight system is working properly. The proper response will elicit the proper, I'm sorry, the proper stimulus, like the deer running in front of you on the highway or, you know, someone approaching you at a rapid speed will elicit the proper um, response and not overboard. So that that's really what most people um, describe afterwards is is not a um, a loss of their ability to to respond appropriately. And so when once once I've gotten this injection, this nerve block um is there like a wear off time period where I need to come and get a second and or third and fourth injection? Yeah, it's great. It's, that's the million dollar question, I think, for a lot of people. Um, just the, some stats to give you an idea here. So first thing I would say is the stellar ganglion block is extremely effective, like not without exaggerating. It can be a game changer, life changing, life saving for many people. Having said that, I, I'll never say that um, it's the cure or a silver bullet or a magic wand or anything like that. It's not. I feel very strongly that the the best way the block can be used is in conjunction with good therapy. So that that's critical. This is not a standalone treatment. It's more like something you would add to the treatment that you're already doing. So having said that, there are people that we treated early on, you know, 10 years ago, who had a single block, did awesome. They're still doing awesome. There are people who came off all their medications. They're doing great. You know, 10 years later, doing wonderful. That's some people. There are some people who we, we treated and then 
never went to therapy or changed any um, lifestyle issues, maybe cha never changed anything in terms of substances that comes up on occasion. Um, and then maybe they got some temporary benefit from the block, but then symptoms might start to creep back up again somewhere down the line. Sometimes people will then elect, hey, can I do this again? Um, sure, absolutely. And generally, subsequent blocks are as effective as the first. What the heck is the effect, right? Is this like a little bit or a lot? Generally, the effect of a stellar ganglion block is about a 50% reduction in symptoms, which if you, um, if you study PTSD or anxiety, that, that's, um, that's massive. A magnitude of, of relief that's that big is a big change. So normally, if you say those kind of numbers to people in, in the behavioral health professional community, people kind of look at you funny, like, eh, it sounds too good to be true, which is fair. I think people should be skeptical if they haven't heard of this before. Um, but time and time again, the research now that's been over 20 articles published in the peer review uh, research demonstrate that there's a significant effect. It happens immediately. So like that day, for many people, it's within a few minutes or a few hours, there'll be a drop in symptoms like that. Then the duration, the question that you ask can be kind of all over the map. I told you 10 years, it could last. Some people, it can last for just a few months. If they're put back in a situation and they're not um, um, compliant with going through the right um, therapy process, sometimes the symptoms will creep back up sooner. I tell most people the average, the curve, if there's kind of a bell-shaped curve in the middle there, there's somewhere around the six months to 12 months mark, people seem to do really well. And then depending on how life happens, symptoms might start to creep back up a little. And the vast majority of people will not wait till the symptoms get back up where they were. They'll say, all right, time out. Can I come back and do another one? And, and it's not intended to be like an oil change or a maintenance procedure. That's not the goal. Okay. But certainly if you need it, we tell everybody, don't, don't beat yourself up. It's certainly not a failure in any way. Come on back and we'll, we'll tamp down the symptoms again. Thank you and have a nice day.